Joan Myers Brown for her contributions as a dancer, choreographer, and artistic director. Founder of the Philadelphia Dance Company, Ms. Brown carved out an artistic haven for African-American dancers and choreographers to innovate, create, and share their unique visions with the national and global dance communities. That citation was read to an audience in the White House yesterday as Joan Myers Brown received the National Medal of Arts from President Barack Obama. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Yesterday, dancer, artistic director, and force of nature, Joan Myers Brown was one of 12 artists who received a 2012 National Medal of Arts, which is the highest award given to artists by the United States government. As a child in Philadelphia, Joan Myers Brown loved ballet, but at that time was unable to find a school that would accept an African-American. So as an adult, Joan took action. In 1960, Joan Myers Brown started the Philadelphia School of Dance Arts, supporting it with money she earned as a dancer in nightclubs. After 10 years in 1970, she then founded the Philadelphia Dance Company, known to all as Philadanko. Both the school and the company have gone on to enormous success, admitting neighborhood kids regardless of their ability to pay and turning them into professional dancers who are acclaimed around the world. Through it all, the company and the school have been guided by Joan as choreographer, artistic director, teacher, marketer, fundraiser, bill payer, cheerleader, and taskmaster. Joan Myers Brown nurtures her dancers, students, and choreographers, but she demands discipline and rigor. Nothing escapes her attention, but she is no prima donna. One of the staff in a New York City theater where Philodanko regularly performs told me that Joan is one of a kind. While her dancers are on stage, Joan's often in the dressing room, washing or ironing costumes. And when she leaves the theater at the end of the night, she moves the garbage pails from the dressing rooms to the hallway to make it easier for the cleaning crew. So it was a particularly joyful occasion for many to see Joan Myers Brown receive the recognition of a National Medal of Arts. When we spoke shortly before the White House ceremony, Joan reflected on that time when dance schools were close to her and on her resolution to help the next generation of African-American dancers. Well, you're talking about in the 49-50 era when the blacks were not doing ballet. I just was lucky enough to have a teacher in school that thought that if given the opportunity, I could do it. And I fell in love with ballet, but it just never really happened. But you did dance. Yes, I did. I ended up doing nightclub work and dancing with Pearl Bailey and Sammy Davis and Cab Calloway, that era. Then I just decided that that was what I really wanted to do. I would open a dance school and perhaps give some youngsters the opportunity that I wasn't afforded. How long did you tour around with people like Cab Calloway and Sammy Davis Jr.? From probably 54 to 62. What do you remember from that era? Having a very good time uh, dancing with people who love to dance and getting the opportunity to tour around the country where I probably would never have left my neighborhood. And then at a certain point, you decided to start a dance school back in Philadelphia. Exactly. In my own neighborhood, in my own community. And I started with youngsters of parents I knew. And this was in 1960. 
Exactly. And so there was some overlap of you still going out on the road and running the school. Well, actually, for six years, I was traveling back and forth to Atlantic City, New Jersey every night, dancing at night, teaching in the day, catching a bus every day for six years until I finally made enough money to pay someone else so that I wouldn't have to do that. Wow, that is a lot of back and forth. From the beginning, the Philadelphia School of Dance Arts, you were really committed to offering inexpensive classes. Well, I thought I would charge what people could afford to pay. Now, I don't know if it was inexpensive or if it was expensive. We gave a lot of scholarships, and we still give a lot of scholarships. And you also gave free shoes, dance wear, and even car fare. Still do. You still do. (laughs) Yep. Money is always a struggle, and I don't mean to imply that it isn't one now. But back in 1960, that really must have been very, very difficult. Well, I think it was even easier then because people didn't expect as much from me as as when we started the company and having responsibilities and compliances. You know, it was easier then because if you didn't have it, you just did the next best thing. So it was before it was professionalized, so to speak. Exactly. Ten years go by and you decide that you're, in fact, going to begin a dance company, the Philadelphia Dance Company, or Philodanko, with an exclamation point. (laughs) (laughs) Why the leap from school to company? Well, you know, I trained these youngsters for 10 years. When they started with me, they were five, six, seven years old. So 10 years later, they're 16, 17. They want to, okay, you've taught us how to dance. You beat us up and made us dance well. Uh, What are we going to do? And I tried to send them off in Philadelphia to the ballet or other companies, and they would bounce back to me saying they didn't want them and there were no opportunities. And, you know, I hate to beat the dead horse, but there's still one black dancer in the ballet company here in Philadelphia. So that hasn't changed too much. But anyhow, I told those guys, I said, well, maybe if I give you some performing experience, you'll think of going to New York or California or somewhere and uh, dancing yourself. And they stay with me. The first group stay with me eight, nine years before they start moving on. And a lot of them went to the Ailey Company, and some of them still go to the Ailey Company. So anyhow, I started the company to give my students an opportunity to perform. And we started dancing in the neighborhoods for the Department of Recreation, for the ladies' auxiliary and all the uh, sororities that always wanted dancers to dance for free. And then I got my first NEA grant from the Expansion Arts Program, and we haven't looked back since. What did you use for a repertoire those first couple of years? Well, I thought I was a choreographer, and then I had friends that were choreographing, and I got them to choreograph for me for free. Then I decided that I wasn't going to be the world's greatest choreographer. I better take care of the store, and I could hire choreographers, and that way I'll give other black youngsters who wanted to be choreographers a place to work and an opportunity to grow. What was your first building for Philodanko? I was on the second floor above a children's retail store, and they put me out because the dancers made too much noise. I was going to say. <laughs> and then where did you end up going? I ended up over another store, and then I ended up over a restaurant, and then I was the pilot program for the National Endowment for the Arts Advancement Grant Program, and I was able to get a building, and we're still in that building. 43 years later, the company has a very particular style that people can recognize. How did that develop? 
I think it was a combination of my training, making sure that the dancers were technically trained, but also I wanted to make sure that people enjoyed what we did. And I think that was part of my show business background, mm. entertaining, uh, making sure audiences didn't leave a Philodanko performance board or thinking, what the heck was that all about? They want to they wanna enjoy themselves when they go see dance. And I think well, they still talk about the Philodanko men because we always seem to have big guys who look good. <laughs> I don't know. And I think that's because at audition, that's what I look for. <laughs> and they can move. And they can dance. Yes. They can dance. And I read that when you began, you recruited football players. Well, yeah, I needed guys. And a friend of mine had a dance club at the West Philadelphia High School. And she used the football players, you know, as walk-ons. I'm like, you think maybe I could get those guys to be in a company? And they tried it. And then, in fact, some of the guys are still dancing from that era when I started their teaching and still involved with dance. Building a repertoire, it's kind of daunting in some ways. It gives you an enormous freedom to have a repertory company, but a lot of thinking has to go into scheduling and finding new work. What do you look for? Well, I usually watch work. I go to see a lot of dance, especially young African-American choreographers who are emerging and looking to develop their skills. I watched them for two or three years. I think Ron Brown, I must have watched him, has a company called Evidence. I watched him for maybe four years before. I said, I think maybe you want to try to do something on Philodanko. And what I do is I give them a year. Most places when they hire a choreographer, they give them two or three weeks. And we usually take a year to develop a work. And they have time to commit to it. I'm working now with Rennie Harris, who has a hip-hop group, which is something I never thought we would do. But uh, we've incorporated his work into our repertory. And I think it makes Philodenko interesting that it isn't the same girl in a different dress all night. Yeah. And Rennie Harris choreographed Wake Up, which actually became a pivotal work for him. It kind of put him on the map. Well, you know, I think the kids, when they get to do wake up, they're not worrying about, am I turned out, are my toes pointed, am I lifted? You know, they can really just let go and just dance. So I think they really enjoy it. He's also grown in his work. I gave him his first opportunity at an International Association of Dance Black Conference, and uh, he got picked up by Chuck Davis, and he hasn't looked back since. But over that course of time, from being just a street dancer, he's developed his vocabulary and developed his skills. So, uh, you know, I like watching that happen. And you also can see that happen as people move from the school to the company, because you're also known for having a very rigorous training among all genres of dance. Yep. (laughs) You say rigorous, I say yep. Yeah, I demand a lot, but you know, my dancers always say I may demand 100%, but I give it back 110. I support them. I support their health. I support their living conditions. I support them helping them do the things they want to do. Uh, Camille Brown is working with my company now, and I would send her $100 whenever I could when she was struggling, you know. So I think it's important to support the work of young artists. Are you the only company? You're one of the very few who gives their dancers a 52-week contract. The last I heard, there were six companies, but now I think more ballet companies are with those big $9 million budgets are trying to do extended contracts for the dancers. And I think it's important that they know they have a job at least for a year rather than for 20 weeks or 30 weeks, that they know that they 
have some responsibility to themselves for at least a year. You also have built housing for them. Well, we moved into a neighborhood that was dilapidated, I guess, for lack of a better word. We bought some of the houses that were falling down, and we started renovating them to make apartments for the dancers. It got to be a lot of work, and uh, we ended up with six units. And so right now we still only have a few units left for the dancers, but we try to keep the rent as low as possible so that they can afford to live alone rather than three or four on top of each other. How does Danko sit in the neighborhood? I'm assuming it just isn't plopped in the neighborhood, but that you're really a part of that community. I think we're plopped in and a part of Uh huh. Because when we first moved in, people were like, a dance school? We're going to have a lot of parking? They gave me a hard way to go. But uh, as we purchased buildings and renovated houses and the developers moved in around us and their children are involved with the school, that we are now part of the community. Whenever there's a problem, we are part of that, solving the problems. And then the, my uh, mayor, Rendell, named my street Philodanko Way, so they can't get rid of us now. Joan, do you remember the first time you took the company a- abroad? Actually, the first time they went abroad, I didn't go with them. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I remember the first time I went, we went, the first time I went with them, I went to Turkey. And it was just thrilling that here I had a bunch of kids from West Philly that I was taking to Turkey. And how did the Turkish people respond to Philodanko, and how did Philodanko respond to the Turkish people? For for me, I really love Turkey. They love us. Wherever we go, people love Philodanko. I, don't, I haven't ever been anywhere where they didn't love us, and that makes me feel good. But last year we went to Macedonia. We were the first American company there. And we had an opportunity to go to the gypsy camps. So those kind of things are important, not only just that we dance, but that we interact with the communities we go to. You know, it's interesting how much of international language dance is or can be. Well, you know, it is. People enjoy beautiful bodies moving, and they enjoy the music. And so I think it all comes together when you travel with dancers now, what makes a Philodanko dancer a Philodanko dancer? We always say you have to get them Danko-sized. I think, <laughs> I think the fact that the, the training schedule that we do, uh, I've had the same teachers for years, and I have teachers who aren't interested in showing what they know but interested in developing dancers. So they are committed to the work that we do and also committed to the ethics that we teach and the demands that we make. And so it it works. Tell me about the ethics that you teach. What do you try to impart to your dancers? Oh, the way they carry themselves, the way they dress when we travel, the way they respect teachers, the way they have to ask, can they come into class if they're late, being on time, all the regular stuff that you have to demand from youngsters that seemingly these days don't get it from home. Okay, let's say I'm a Philodanko dancer. What is my day like? Well, I started the company on top of my school, so I used to have my rehearsal time around the school because I was still making a living from my school. So most of our rehearsals were in the evening, and I've maintained that so that a lot of the youngsters can go to college in the daytime. They can get better jobs if they want to supplement their income other than being a waiter or waitress or a busboy. So a lot of the dancers do have daytime jobs. Two of my dancers are in college now. And uh, they find classes for themselves outside of the fact that I'm on the, uh, the, 
the faculty at the University of the Arts, so they can take classes there free. So a lot of them I see at 8 o'clock in the morning going to class or going to yoga. Then they go to a job if they have a second job, and then they come in at 7 o'clock at the studio and take class, and then we rehearse till 10.30 or 11 at night. And, you know, people say, you rehearse at night? I'm saying, yeah, but that works because when we perform at night, they're used to dancing at night. So that kind of worked for us. We rehearse Saturdays and Sundays because I'm building or still maintaining my company around my school. So I have 30 teachers in my school now where it used to be just me. You also created two other company, a D2. Is it, would you call it a company? It's an apprentice company. It's apprentice company. It's a bunch of youngsters who really want to perform and don't have that performing experience on their resumes. So when they put Phil and Hank on their resumes, they always get a job. So we have youngsters from the age of 15 to about 23 in the D2 program, and they do all the things that people want us to do that they don't want to pay us to do. So I said, okay, here's another opportunity for you to gain experience. And... Uh, They also take classes with the company. They have their own schedule, and it's been quite successful. Everywhere I go, I'll meet somebody and say, weren't you in D2? And they say, yep. (laughs) And you also have a D3. D3 is my my youth group. Those are youngsters from 10 to 15. Because I want to encourage the talented youth to continue with encouraging their talent because so many of my girls and boys, when they get to graduate from high school, they stop dancing because the mom said you got to go to college. But now you can get a degree in dance, and now you can have other things to do with dance around choreography, his, dance history. So now I, if I can encourage them young enough to want to pursue their careers and, and use their talents, then they, we're not losing them. How has the company changed over the years? I think basically it has not changed. People have changed. I think that the dancers I get now are coming from institutions where their training isn't what it should be, so we're retraining them. Uh, The dancers are injured more, and my dancers used to never be injured, and they come with injuries, so that to me has changed. Uh, Trying to find support and money for, for the company is increasingly more difficult. If it weren't for New York, Philadelphia Dance Company would be in trouble. I get uh, national funding more so than local funding. I think local funding, they want me to adhere to a set of rules, and I guess I'm hard-headed. I say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's not a corporation. It's a dance company. What do they want you to do? Have a COO, a CEO. I say, I don't need that. I need a managing director that can fundraise. I see. (laughs) You know? They want you to go into that corporate structure. I know there are compliances, and, and, and I always want to comply with the, the regulations, but it's difficult. You run an operation that includes the school, the children's performing group, a junior company, and the main ensemble. You founded the Philadelphia School of Dance Art. You founded Philodanko. You were a founder of the International Conference of Black Dance Companies. And you founded the International Association of Blacks in Dance. I think I have founder's disease. Because I founded the Coalition of African American Organizations, and I founded. I, I've been I've been on the founding thing for many years. But I always see a need, and I 
I think that it's important to address a need, especially in our community. And if someone doesn't, it doesn't happen. Now, what was the need for the conference of the International Conference of Black Dance Companies? Well, I was a member of Dance USA. I was on the board of directors. And there was talk at, at the board meeting that people should think of considering diversifying their audiences. And there was conversation saying, oh, no, we're not interested. They don't buy subscriptions. They don't do this. And I'm like, well, I better take us and them out of there and start our own because if not, we're not going to be included. So I held the first conference trying to think about the few people I knew that had black companies like mine. And I contacted five women I knew around the country. And then I went through the dance directory and I addressed all the people that something said African, black, African American, African, and invited them to Philadelphia. Let's sit down and talk and figure out how we can help ourselves. And I thought it would be a few of us sitting around my kitchen table. I think 60 people showed up the first year. And the last conference, I think we had over 600 people. So hmm. 25 years later, I'm still doing that. And 25 years later, there's still a need if you look at other dance companies. Exactly. We were talking again. As I said earlier, the Pennsylvania Ballet still only has one black dancer. If it were not for the fact that there are the black Broadway shows now, Fela, well, Color Purple Clothes, but Lion King, I think Motown, if those shows weren't open, black dancers wouldn't be working, not as much as they want, because one of my dancers just went to the Adams family. She's still the only black in the show. So if they don't get these opportunities in these all-black companies, or all-black, or predominantly, I should say, predominantly black companies, predominantly black shows, then they're not going to be working. And what does the International Association of Blacks in Dance, what's the mission of that organization? Actually, to support each other, to share resources, to provide performing opportunities. We can put on a, a conference and we will show 30 African American or predominantly black companies, and a, a presenter will come see that, whereas he won't go individually to 30 companies to see them. But at a conference, they can see all the companies and possibly give them work. And also, we share resources, we share dancers, we have a multi a company audition where 10 companies look at the dancers at once and then we have maybe 50 or 60 dancers. They select the company they're interested in. And we, I hired uh, two dancers last year from the conference auditions that were from Oklahoma and I probably wouldn't have seen them if we hadn't had the conference. So um, there's the, the Black United Fund. A lot of companies didn't know about the Black United Fund where you could apply for money. It's a, a gathering where we share, talk about fundraising, we talk about marketing, all the things as they, as they affect us as a, a people. Now, let me ask you about being a, a predominantly black dance company and how that is working with presenters. You know, if you look at a, a roster of any dance series in any city in the United States, it's going to be one predominantly African-American company. So it'll start with Ailey, then it'll be Ailey 2, then they say, okay, it'll be Philodanko, or isn't there another one? Oh, yeah, well, I heard of one called Dallas Black, or 
or Cleo Parker Robinson. Or there's going to be a flavor of the month, Alonzo King or Bill T. Jones, whoever. But it's always after the fact. Oh, we don't have a black company or predominantly black company on our series. How do you deal with that? You try to hope that you get hired this year. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, having a good agent sort of helps that we're on people's rosters. We rotate on a lot of rosters. But the chances of seeing Alvin Ailey and Philodanko in the same festival, not so good. Never. Never. (laughs) Never. uh, We were working in in Germantown, Tennessee, where they would alternate us. One year he would do Ailey because it cost him a lot of money. And the next year he would do Danko so he could make up for the fact that he lost money last year. (laughs) I mean, that was what he told me, you know. Now tell me, when you began the school 53 years ago, the company 43 years ago, could you ever envision that you would have done so much? You know, absolutely not. I just enjoyed teaching children, and I thought that's what I would be doing. You know, then I had my own family for a few years. I was, like, home with two babies. So there wasn't too much I could do. And in the midst of that, I started Danko, and then I was lucky to have good friends and good support of neighbors and community. So I was able to do it all, but it kept growing. And when he started talking about going overseas, I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, I got to get up in the morning and get my kids to school. So I had to wait really till they were self-sufficient before I could think of even touring internationally. What's your goal for Philodanko now? Well, I'm trying to maintain. At my age, I, you know, you never know. I want to make sure there's a plan in place for the future so that Philodenko can continue. I want to step out of the administrative fundraising meetings. I want to step out of that and just concentrate and enjoy being with the dancers. I don't mind traveling after this award. We get the award at 1 o'clock. At 7 o'clock, I'm on a plane to Chile to meet my company. That's, that's what I want to spend the rest of my life being a part of the dancer's world, not trying to figure out how am I going to pay the, the bills. And who can blame you for that? And I think it's valiant you stuck in the bill-paying part this long. Still. Still. <laughs> <laughs> Joan Myers-Brown, thank you so much. Thank you for years of just wonderful, wonderful dancing. Uh, thank you so very much. That was founder and artistic director of Philodanko, and a 2012 National Medal of Arts recipient, Joan Myers-Brown. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from For Eric, Piano Study, from the album Metascapes, composed and performed by Todd Barton, used courtesy of Valley Productions. Special thanks to the Joyce Theater in New York City. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, the director of The Loving Story, Nancy Bursky. To find out how Artworks in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.